You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you guys would uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read uh, from Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, and then jump to Philippians chapter 4. Exodus twenty seventeen says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And then Philippians chapter 4, Paul says this in verse 10 to 13. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we just declare, God, it's, it's from you. Lord, that, that all blessings flow. And we say with thankful hearts tonight, God, we love you. We ask that you be in the midst of us tonight, God, that, um, God, you would, you would surface in us the things you want to deal with. God, you would make your word alive to us tonight, that it would be working and moving in our minds and in our hearts and God, that you would anoint my lips, God, and transform my mind to deliver your word to your people, God. Um, it has to be your spirit working in us, Lord, and so I ask that your spirit would be at work this service, God. We submit all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're talking about coveting versus contentment. And I find it ironic that we're dealing with this subject on the heels of thanksgiving, the one day on our calendar that we set aside to be thankful. 364 days, not thankful. One day, we'll be thankful. But even on that one thankful day, there's a darkness waiting on the other side. A black day. <laughs> when, when all of our desires are unleashed, where, where all of our wanting is pursued for 20% off. Isn't it interesting? Is interesting to you guys? It's interesting to me that, that people are picketing on Thanksgiving Day to try to stop shops from opening. Just give us one day, one full day of thankfulness. And even then, our hearts just desire things. Our want just continues to stir inside of us. Today we are um, we're closing our series on following God where we talked through the Ten Commandments. And if you remember, we started this 
series saying uh, God told us that he had saved Israel, that salvation was secure, he had rescued his people. And then the next thing he says is because of this, if you will follow me, love me, love me, and don't pursue any other idols, any other gods. This is the way God starts the Ten Commandments, his instructions of how to follow him. And, and tonight, on the bookend of these Ten Commandments, he finishes by saying, love me so much that you're content with me and nothing else. He starts off saying, love me, serve me only, and he finishes saying, don't let your eyes wander to the things around you. Be content. Be so in love with me that you're content, a content people. The encouraging thing about this is that it's a commandment, not a suggestion or an offering. God says, if you will be my people, you will be a content people. That means all of us have the opportunity for contentment as we choose to follow God. It is God's designed plan for his people that we would live a contented life. Tonight we'll look at coveting and contentment in three specific points. The first is the cost of coveting. What it costs us to covet. The second is the secret of contentment. And the last is the model of Christ. The cost of coveting, the secret of contentment, and the model of Christ. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, God commands that his people not set their hearts on the things they don't have. But it's unique because he specifies certain things. God says, don't covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his servants, ox or donkey. Specific things. What do these things represent to Israel? They represent the things that most draw the Israelites' heart away from desiring God. Things that, that draw their eyes off of the Lord. And what do these things represent for us? Are you coveting that sleek new donkey in your neighbor's driveway? What do these things represent for us? If you boil these things down, we can break it into three areas that God's talking about. Possessions, sex and sexual relationships, and power. These three things, possessions, sex, and power, have consumed the human heart from the very beginning all the way back to the garden. In the garden... Eve is desiring something that is just outside the boundary of what God has provided for her. There's one thing that is just out of reach, and that becomes the thing she desires most. Why are these things so powerful? Why are they such a powerful influence in our, in our lives? First, we have to start... By recognizing, from, for all of time, humanity has recognized that there is a longing and a wanting inside of us. Mark Twain said, you don't know just what it is you really want. 
but it fairly makes your heart ache. You want it so. You don't even know what it is you want, but man, you want it. Wallace Stevens, the poet, he put it this way. He said, even in contentment, I feel the need of some imperishable bliss. What he's saying, even when I'm happy, even when I'm at peace, I feel this need for something that isn't here today and gone tomorrow. Something imperishable, eternal. What Twain and Stevens are saying is there's an inner longing inside the human heart for something that sets our soul at rest. Something that the simple pleasures of this world just give us a taste of, but never satiate us. The pleasures of this world, they they give you just enough happiness, just enough peace, just enough joy to keep you coming back. It's like golf. I'm horrible at golf, and I go play golf for an entire day, spend way more money than I can afford, and for almost the whole day, I hate it. But there's this one hole every single time where I hit it straight off the tee into the fairway. And then my approach shot lands somewhere in the vicinity of where I was hoping. And I putt less than seven times. (laughs) And I think, I like this game. I'm good at this game. I can play this game. And it's a lie. (laughs) It's not true. But it keeps me coming back. This is the things of this world that just give you a little, just enough to keep you coming back, to keep that desire, that hunger inside of you. When God specifies these areas of possession and sex and power as areas we should not covet, he's telling us that we look too often to these areas to satisfy what only he can satisfy. Your house your sexual partner, your level of power and influence will give you a short-term high. It will give you a fleeting contentment. But it will never satisfy your soul. And the more that that desire grows, the more that that hunger develops inside of you, the more miserable you become and the more dangerous you become. What's the difference between desiring and coveting? Let's talk about that. Tim Keller has a great way of putting it. He says, when it's desiring, you're the dog and desiring is the tail. When it's coveting, desiring is the dog and you're the tail. The difference is who's in control, who's wagging who. When it's coveting, it controls you and it drives you and it shapes your decision making. You're the tail when you're coveting and that desire is just wagging you all day long. And in coveting, there, there becomes this inner grasping, this desperation that says, I must have this thing. I must have this person or I'm dead or I'm hopeless, or I'm worthless. 
And if we drill down a little bit deeper, let's ask ourselves some questions. Are you angry? In your heart, are you angry? Do you live in a constant state of frustration and disappointment? Are you unhappy? Are you depressed? Have you asked yourself why? James says, it's because we're coveting something. That desire has taken us over. It's ruling over us. Listen to what James says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is what James is saying, that coveting is like a seed that gets planted in our heart when we see someone who has what we're longing for. It's a seed that gets planted, and that seed begins to take root and dig in deep. And as it breaks through the surface, it it shows itself in our frustration and our unhappiness, our anger, and in full bloom, that coveting becomes murder and slander and theft. But are we saying that it's wrong to desire something? Are we saying that it's wrong to want for things? Desire simply means to want or wish for something. Pretty simple. Now Jesus talks about desire. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus shares divine insight into our human desire. This is what he says. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall I eat or what shall I drink or what shall I wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What is Jesus saying here? Let's look at what he's not saying first. He doesn't tell us to stop desiring or wanting things. He doesn't say, stop desiring food, you gluttons, or stop desiring a house. Don't you see the bush over there? Be happy with it. Stop desiring clothing. He doesn't say that. That's not what Christ is saying. What he is saying is that if these things make you anxious... If you are struggling with anxiety in these areas, 
where your meal will come from next, if you will get that apartment in the district you're hoping for, what clothes you will buy on sale, if these things consume your heart and your mind, if you are anxious, then Jesus is saying that these things consume a portion of your life that is not healthy. These things have unright priority in your heart. And this anxiousness, it reveals a couple things. First, that these things mean more to you than they ought to. What does it mean if you're anxious about your clothing? What do those clothes represent? If you are anxious about your savings account, what does that savings account represent? If you're waking up at night thinking about your housing or that job promotion or you name it, fill in the blank, what does that represent? Ask yourself tonight that question. What does this represent that I am anxious about? Jesus asks a poignant question. He says, isn't your life more than food? Isn't the body more than clothing? Isn't your life more than this stuff? The second thing that this anxiousness reveals is that there is a trust issue between you and God. There's a trust issue. Our anxiousness, it reveals a fear that God will not come through for us. Or maybe that God doesn't care about the same things that we care about. There's a trust issue. I think this is very common. It's a common fear in all of us. That God's either not reliable or he doesn't care about the things that you do. But let's listen to what Jesus says here. He deals with our anxiousness. First he says... He does understand your need. In Matthew 6, 32, he says, your heavenly father knows you need all of these things. He knows you need it before you know you need it. He knows. And then secondly, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then all of these things will be added unto you. What does this tell us? It tells us that more often than not, we, instead of seeking his kingdom, we are seeking our kingdom. Instead of seeking the kingdom of God, I am much more concerned about the kingdom of Dave and building up my castle. What Jesus is telling us to do Stop striving to make your home and your dress and your lifestyle define your worth and your value. Stop it. Stop building up your kingdom. Instead, what he's saying is become open-handed with God. And I'll explain what that means in just a little bit. Stop holding on to the things in this world. And as you do, this amazing thing happens. God begins to add the things you need unto you. This is one of the reasons Jesus says that it's harder for a rich man, it's harder for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? I'm not knocking rich people. We love you. 
What he's saying is that when your ultimate hope, your eternal hope, is found in anything outside of God, it will eventually eclipse God. The danger for a rich man is that he may have no understanding of a need. He might have no understanding of trusting God for his needs. Instead, he can find everything he needs in his own kingdom. Sadly, this false sense of security can be the very thing that keeps a man's heart from God. I had a former student of mine who, um, right after graduation, he became a paramedic. And uh, he went to work in Los Angeles. And after one of his shifts, he, he came back to the high school where I was working and we went out to lunch and I was just asking him, you know, how things were going and, and getting caught up and I said, it must be really hard to be a paramedic in LA. I mean, the gang violence and, and the drug addiction and the stuff you must see, it must be terrible. And he said, yeah, there's some gnarly stuff going on. But I'll tell you what shocked me the most is how much bad stuff is going on in Beverly Hills. And he told me this story. He said, I was called out to a house that was the size of a hotel. It had six garages. And we went into the front door, and there was these staircases that looked like they went on forever. It was enormous. And in the corner of the living room were two beautiful kids huddled with their housekeeper and went upstairs to the master bedroom and lying on the floor is a woman that's had so much plastic surgery she looks more like a Barbie doll than a human being and in her hands she's got a bottle of pills and in her, the note she leaves behind she says I have no hope I feel worthless, and I can't keep this up. Do you guys see the irony of this? Can you capture this tonight? That everything this woman had is so much of what we're striving for every day. We are trying to build our kingdom to have this house the woman had a closet with designer clothes. There was no want that she could not afford. And it left her in death. Hopeless. Please do not go down this road. Will you just think tonight about the things in your heart? that are pulling you from God, that are pulling you down this road that leads to nowhere. We are trying to build up these kingdoms that won't last, that are perishable, not imperishable. And God knows, he knows our heart, he knows we strive for these things. And he tells us there's a difference between desiring and coveting. Remember we said desiring and wanting is something Christ tells us is normal. It's okay in the right priority of our life. 
But coveting, on the other hand, is wanting the things just out of reach, the things that have been given to someone else. It takes our healthy desire and it perverts it. Here's how Edmund Clowney, the author, he, he puts, puts it this way. Covetousness taps the natural desires God has given us and attempts to twist them and play on them to create envy in our souls. The envy that this commandment forbids is not only a desire for something that belongs to someone else, it's a desire for anything that draws us away from contentment, contentedly serving God wherever in his good providence he has placed us. See, these two things go hand in hand. When we desire what others have, it not only makes us discontent with what we have, but it actually draws us away from where God has placed us. Could it be tonight, and I just want to challenge you with this, could it be the reality is that God, God's plan for your life does not include being rich and comfortable? Is that possible? That God's plan for your life does not include being rich and comfortable. If we could come to a place of trusting God enough that he is a good father who gives good gifts to his children and he loves you abundantly way more than your uh, earthly mother and father ever could, if we could believe that God is who he says he is, could you believe that he has a plan for you even in your struggle? That he loves you even in the difficult place that you're in right now. And maybe he is walking you through something because he loves you. I see this coveting in my kids all the time. I have three daughters. And you can pick any one of them. It doesn't matter their age. And you put them in a room. You give them a book or a toy, or a game, anything, by themselves, in a room, and they will be happy for hours. They will play for hours. Well, maybe it's like 20 minutes, but it feels like hours. When you're a parent, 20 minutes feels like hours. But the instant another child walks into the room with anything, it could be a spoon, <laughs> my kids look at whatever they're holding and say, I hate this. This is dumb and ugly. I want the spoon. The sad thing is we are just overgrown kids. Those boots. Oh, those are such great boots. My boots are dumb. I want those boots. Oh, my retirement account. I heard that guy retired. He retired early. Why can't I retire? And social media does not help this at all. You can be just sitting at home peacefully reviewing what is going on in the world. And then bam. Honey, that couple, they went to Maui. Again. Two times in the same year. God bless them. Good for them. On a bigger level, 
again, could it be that this contentment is tied to just being satisfied with God? When, when I see my kids and they're just unsatisfied with everything that comes through the house, and my kids are great, uh, I'm joking, they're, they're awesome, but they're kids, they're human, they're just like me, they get dissatisfied quickly. Could it be that if we just understood God's love for us in a new way, in a full way, that we could understand that, that riches and, and glory and all the things that our heart are wrapped up in, maybe, maybe that's not God's plan for our life. And this is, again, of course, one of the amazing ironies within the Christian life. What we think will make us happy is oftentimes what makes us most discontent. And what we believe will lead us to unhappiness is what brings oftentimes much contentment. If you ask an older couple that's been married for many, many years and lived a life together, when, when was your most happy time? When, when was your guy's marriage the best? When, when do you look back fondly? So many times they will tell you it was at the beginning when we had nothing. And we were just scraping by. And we lived in this studio apartment with no TV. And we were just living check to check. But, man, we were in love. And life was simple. And things were good. And then you start adding in mortgages and, and, and career opportunities and putting the kids into college and all these things. And now you need more money and you need to keep up with the neighbors next door and all of these things. And man, if we could just go back, uh, it was so simple at the beginning. What if, just call me crazy, but what if the thing that you are looking for to, to Create that contentment in your life is the very thing that is making you most discontent. What if? And what if when that thing's stripped away, if it gets pulled out of your hands, what if on the other side of that you had more freedom and more peace and contentment? I think so many times that's the reality of our life. That coveting that longing for the thing just outside what we've been given, it robs us of a joy, of freedom. And that freedom that comes from depending on God for everything you need. There's a freedom in that when we just trust that God will provide. If you go to a, a third world country, if you go to Mexico or to, to Africa and places where they are literally just scraping by, just getting by, you will be blown away by the joy of the people in those places. They have come to a place of saying, I can't do this. I have no way of providing for myself. And we just trust that God provides and he does miraculous things. It's awesome. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul makes an astounding claim. He says that he has the secret to happiness. That is a New York Times bestseller if I ever heard it. I have the secret to contentment and happiness. He claims that he's found the secret of being content regardless of his circumstances. 
regardless of his circumstances. Whether he is in need or has plenty, if he's well-fed or hungry, his contentment doesn't change. Now, maybe you're thinking the same thing I thought when I first read this about Paul. That man must live a cushy life. He must live the high life. His circumstances must be pretty good if they don't ever change his contentment. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Paul gives us a quick summary of his adventures in preaching the gospel in 2 Corinthians. Look what he says. Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's rocks, not puff puff. Three times, three times I was shipwrecked, a day and a night adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. Who wants to sign up for that? Now, this is the same man who claims he's found the secret of contentment regardless of his circumstances. What Paul is saying is he is adrift at sea for a day and a night, and he's at peace, content, beaten, stone, thrown, rocks, rocks thrown at him to kill him. He lives in contentment. That might not compute for you. It certainly is hard to compute for me because I'll tell you that for me, my contentment is very much tied to my circumstances. When there is money in the bank, when my calendar is ticking ever closer to my next vacation, when people are patting me on the back saying, good job with this and good job with that, contentment. I'm happy. I have peace. Life is good. However, when my bank account is very low, dangerously low, when it feels like I haven't had a break in months or years, when my friends are reminding me of my failures and shortcomings, there's very little contentment in my heart. My circumstances very much dictate my contentment. So how can Paul make this claim? That circumstances don't dictate happiness. This state of contentment can only be grasped when we live open-handedly with God. Open-handedly. And this is what I mean by open-handedly. So often in our life, our job our spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, hobby, what have you. We don't simply enjoy these things for what they are, a blessing. Instead, we cling to these things for contentment. Our job becomes the central focus of our life in an effort to create some kind of contentment. 
And because of this pursuit, we neglect our health and our relationships, and we become close-handed with God. God, I'll serve you, but I have this deal that needs to close. I have a lot of money riding on this. You better come through for me. Close-handed. Our relationships become a focus of our life in an effort to create some kind of contentment for ourselves. And because of this pursuit, we give away our bodies and our heart and our soul to another human being who cannot possibly carry the weight of your soul. We become close-handed. God, I will serve you, but I need this relationship to work out. I need this person to love me. Close-handed with God. And we're looking, again, for contentment in these perishable blisses of life rather than the imperishable ones. But Paul, he... In his life of plenty and suffering, he testifies that in, in Christ and Christ alone, he has strength, he has peace, he has rest in plenty and in wanting, in suffering. It doesn't change. Please hear this tonight. The secret to contentment is to stop trying to create contentment for yourself and instead receive freely the contentment that Christ has offered you. Stop trying to create happiness for yourself. Stop trying to build a kingdom for yourself. Be open-handed with everything you possess. And this miraculous thing happens. If your bank account gets drained out, you can have peace because you are not tied to that bank account for your contentment. If that relationship does not work out the way you had hoped, you can have contentment because you are not tied to that relationship for all of your peace and all of your security. It's found in Christ. Do you see the freedom? Stop trying to create happiness and contentment for yourself. It's given to you freely already. Just receive it in Christ. Christ, of course, was the greatest example of living a life of contentment. Leaving the glory, the peace, the shalom of heaven... And coming down and, and becoming a servant on earth. And he did not live an easy life. Christ was mocked and harassed. He was spit on and chased. He was tortured to death. And yet what do we see in the life of Christ? Absolute contentment. If I... If we look at this water bottle, whatever's inside of this water bottle, when it is shaken, when it is poured out, it's going to come out. It can't help it. And we're the same way. 
if you are rattled in your life, if you are shaken, if you are pushed, if the things that you are really clinging to close-handedly, if they're under attack, whatever's inside will come out. And what is the example of Christ? Pursued, harassed, spit on, chased, mocked. And we see him in the garden of Gethsemane, waiting to go to the cross. And what does he say? Not my will. Not my kingdom. But yours, Lord. I am open-handed with my entire life. My very life, I give freely away for you. This is the example Christ sets for us. And this is his words, and they're, they're powerful. This is what we need to cling to tonight. In Matthew 16, 25, Jesus tells us this. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my name's sake will find it. This is the, the closing of the Ten Commandments. That we would be so enamored with Christ. We would be so in love with Jesus. That we would freely give even our life away. And it would be saved. We would actually find our life for the first time. And he warns us, as hard as you may try to save your life, as hard as you may, as much work and toil, sweat and tears you would pour into your own contentment, you will end losing your life. It will be empty. Church, can we just, gosh, if we could catch a glimpse of this, how good God is, how rich and full he is. Man, everything else looks like garbage. Let's, let's have that be our prayer and our heart tonight. Let's pray. Sweet, sweet Jesus, our Savior and our friend, we call on your name tonight, God. We have built up kingdoms. God, we have tied our hearts to things that, that are anchors, that are weighing us down and actually keeping us from you. And God, your story the story of the entire Bible, Lord, is your pursuit of us, that you want to rescue us, God. Lord, I pray in this time tonight, as we worship you, Lord, as we cast our mind and our heart at your feet, Lord God, I ask that you would meet us here tonight. 
And God, you'd reveal in us, God, places we don't even see, the things we don't know or understand inside of us that have kept us from you. Lord, that we would be transparent with you, our heavenly Father who loves us. God, we would be so open-handed and transparent. God, we'd say, I don't trust you, God, in this area or that area, that you can handle that. God, that you want that from your sons and your daughters to be open-handed, to be transparent with you. And God, I ask for the miraculous tonight that as we open our hearts, Lord, and we release the grip on some of these things, Lord, that you would be faithful to take it off of us, Lord, and impart on us your peace and your joy and your love, God, like we have never experienced before. We believe, God, we believe that your Holy Spirit is, is powerful enough to break every chain that has weighed us down. We say it in faith, God, come and do a work in us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.